The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. the world go round, or so it is said. It has also been proposed that greed is good, but what if one started to pull at that thread? What would happen to you if you realised that you were the villain of the world? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and hamburger farmer, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's feature is How to Get Ahead in Advertising, the 1989 satire written and directed by Bruce Robinson and starring Richard E. Grant. My guest is Chris Armsby, and you join us in his less-than-ascetic home. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you? Are you feeling all right? Oh, yes, up to a point. Um, I've got a... No suspicious aches and pains? Oh, several. But they... <laughs> <laughs> I slept on the floor last night listening and my back hurts. <laughs> yes, should... it's, it's true, actually. This, this, this isn't a bit. He's actually in a yeah. reasonable amount of pain. This, this is a glimpse into my sad, sad life. I'm sure I'll be fine by the time I have to go back to work. I, I hope you will be. Because... Um, if we know one thing about this film, if you do go into hospital, <laughs> you won't be the same man you were when you went in. No, apparently not. <laughs> so had you seen How to Get Ahead in Advertising before? No, and I'm a little bit surprised that I hadn't, because, but I think it's because I came quite late to Withnell and I, which obviously you can't talk about one without talking about the other. Yeah, they're, um, they're very much of a piece. And I think if I'd seen, I think if I'd seen Withnell much earlier, I might have been... More no, watched it a couple of days ago, and first time I'd ever seen it. And what was your immediate reaction? It's, I, I kind of went through several different phases with it. I started out really liking it, um, and then it, uh, I kind of feel like it loses its way a little bit somewhere in the middle, um, and it goes through various different things. There's one point when it seems like, yes, it's just going to be a straightforward satire of advertising. And then suddenly it looks like it's going to turn into the man who haunted himself. And then it just kind of ends. <laughs> but on the whole, I enjoyed it. Um, well, one thing that helped me get a handle on it when I was watching it this time is that there are repeated references to 1984. 
Uh, yes, of course. He, 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 he mentions yes. Orwell by name, refers mm. to Big Brother as being the television in the corner of the room. Yeah. And the psychiatrist refers to the boil as being his own personal Big Brother that he carries around with him. Yeah. There's also the fact that his wife is called Julia. Didn't pick up on that at all. And by the end, he has embraced Big Brother wholeheartedly. Yes. And envisions apocalyptic victory. So, do you think it was uh, a film that has aged well, perhaps? That's that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, the the temptation is to 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 jump right ahead and talk about the end, which is maybe not the best of ideas. I thought that a lot of the satire, a lot of the stuff that it had to say about advertising as an industry, just seemed a bit obvious. That advertising isn't very nice and it's made by cynical people that just care about the money. I don't know. True, that's that's true, and I feel it does need to it does need to be said. But it's more the point that advertising has infected the process of government. That governments operate by way of advertising and propaganda I and that it's selling people a product that they don't need for a problem that the government has created I suppose so I th- maybe that bit kind of went over my head to be honest I certainly in the the point where there were the anniversary dinner and he's talking about our nuclear missiles are better because they contain pace and I'm sort of thinking I'm not following your point here you know it did it was obviously this is a terrible thing so it's going to sound it's obviously something that bruce robinson felt very strongly about <laughs> i just couldn't quite i'm not sure if part of the problem and this is and, and here we go again maybe this is probably now me getting with now and i completely wrong with now and i seemed like a bit of a revelation when it came out because it came out what 88 87 87 so that was the 20th anniversary of Sergeant Pepper. It's for lots and lots of boring articles starting with lines it was 20 years ago today. Yes. There was a lot of nostalgia for the 60s. And then you get this film that comes out that's completely out of tune with the public mood and goes, no, actually the 60s were horrible and a bit, a bit awful. And they were cold and it was people living in lousy housing and, and having a bad time. And it was interesting that with Nell and I was so out of step with the memory, which was this very, very sort of safe nostalgia for the 60s. And then a couple of years later, How to Get Ahead in Advertising comes along. And everybody was kind of on a bit of an anti-corporate kick at the same time. You know, um, I think Ben Elton had started writing Stark by... I think Stark had come out by then, and that was a bit... And, and, and Gridlock was on the way, which was also very sort of anti-corporate... I don't think he'd come over to the UK yet, but I think Bill Hicks had started doing his stand-up in the US, hadn't he? I think um, so, yeah. And, and you'd had stuff like The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, which had already kind of done that man's crisis of confidence in capitalism yeah. stuff. And I don't know, it's just odd that you he, Bruce Robinson wrote, wrote one film that was was great because it challenged what everybody was saying about the 60s, and then he follows it up with a film that just seemed very much more in step with the mood of the times. And maybe that's why it but, doesn't stand out so but, much. But, but it's, I think, just as anti-establishment as Woodnall. Yes, I suppose it is. I suppose it's more just... Be, 
it's very, very easy to react to the to what seems like the obviousness of the message. And you know, I certainly I didn't really pick up on all the stuff about what it was saying about government, which, yes, God help us, is probably more true now than it's ever been. Yes. Um, but, I yeah, I don't know. It just, it, it does feel like, a, a, at times it does feel like that it's just adverts. They're not very nice, are they? Um, but it's the fact that he pursues that line of thinking... Mm. through to its conclusion. Yes. The idea of government by sloganeering, which we're seeing right now. Well, yes, that's true. Um, the deferential attitude towards voices of authority, regardless of what they're saying. Yes. Well, the, the, the slightly weird combination of deferential attitudes towards voices of authority, combined with the message that everyone's fed up with experts and doesn't want to listen to what they have to say. Um, it's Yeah, it's a very, very confused situation, isn't it? Um, um, the main character, that was, I was convinced that who, he was called Desmond. I don't know where I got this <laughs> His name's Dennis. Um, he begins and ends the film with monologues. Mm. And at the start he's addressing a room full of um, copywriters about how they should be doing their jobs, how they should be focusing on specific types of people to sell shit. Yes, yeah. That separated metal heart attack called the British Sausage. Yes, they're not in any... There's, 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 no, there's no doubt about the fact that, yes, the characters don't believe or use any of the products that they're, that they're advertising. No. Except possibly for cigarettes, of course. But. No, he, yes, he, he smokes endlessly until he stops. Yes, and then starts again. And he always holds the cigarette in a clenched fist, mm. I noticed. I mean, what's interesting as well, I'm guessing that... Was it this film? Was, I suppose With Nell and I was, a, was obviously a, a considerably bigger success than How to Get Ahead in Advertising. But it's How to Get Ahead in Advertising that at times seems to contain all the seeds of what would go on to be the standard Richard E. Grant... Performance. Yes, exactly. You can. You. I could. I was watching advertising. I, I might end up referring to it as Boyle because that's how he refers to it in his diaries, yeah. and it saves a lot of time, to be honest. But when you watch it, and there's the bit when he's in the office and he's monologuing different characters to play, um, to, for to, their, to, to, to brainstorm the yeah, cream. You can see. I could see because Hudson Hawk. Was was not quite his next film, but it's it's looming somewhere on the horizon at this point because I think he did Warlock, and then and he did it. L.A. Story. But Hudson Hawk would have kind of been in. It would have been. It would have been relatively close. Yeah. To this, I think. And I can just see, and you can, and it's when particularly when he's doing the brainstorming and he's he's acting out the characters and obviously mo mo mocking their body language a bit. You can start to see that Hudson Hawk performance, and and I wonder if it was this rather than with Nell and I that got him cast in a lot of those films and kind of that's where the Richard E. Grant performance came from. I think so. Particularly there are, there are points in the movie where he's going really over the top mm. in a way that's justified by the scene because his character is having a massive nervous breakdown where you can see, yes, the, uh, the, uh, the doing the pelvic thrusts while the giant gold-making machine is running in Hudson Hawk because Hudson Hawk is a from my memory, it's a complete nightmare. Yeah, yeah, it's been <laughs> it's been a couple of decades since I've seen it. Coming soon to Cinema Limbo. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, I've got Anthony to watch it. I love watching him squirm. <laughs> um, 
here it balances. You have mm. scenes where he's very quiet, very intense. You have the, him where he's acting out these characters just to brainstorm. And the way he just jumps between them. Yes. There's a moment where he turns around and his body language is immediately very feminine. Yeah. And he talks in an exaggerated feminine voice. Hi, my name is Barbara Simmons. And it's, it's, the, it's immediately a character. Mm. Oh, wow, this is... This was like... It's like the life and death of Peter Sellers, where you have other yeah. Sellers plays other characters playing himself within scenes, so it has mm. that kind of recursive effect. It's a very, it's a very good performance from Richard E. Grant. It's, it's an extraordinary performance. Mm. I think he's absolutely incredible. What I really liked, particularly at the start, um, you can see that the dialogue he's, the dialogue that Bruce Robinson has written for Dennis is very sharp. And a different actor might have played him as a much more aggressive and unlikable character. Lots of sort of finger jabbing and getting in people's faces and a more angry tone of voice. But Richard E. Grant, particularly in the early scenes, brings a bit of a softness. Okay, you've got the scene where he's dressing down the copywriters at the start. But then when he goes off and starts talking to other people, there's, there's a, he softens the edges of the characters a little bit. And it kind of makes the split later on more believable because you do see both sides of his character come through it's it's a it's a genuine it's a really good performance um, when he's talking to colleagues and corridors for example mm. he's, a, he's a little brisk but he's yeah. perfectly, you know, it's perfectly pleasant nice. and reasonable the scene when he's talking to his wife in the car again could have been a lot more snappy and a lot more angry and it could have been somebody that's you know you could have believed, it. but you can see why she. You can see why they've got a, at that point got a strong relationship, and that they that they love each other because he's he's fundamentally a nice. He's fundamentally comes across as a nice guy, if if a massive hypocrite, because he's doing something he, he doesn't particularly believe in. He just happens to be very good at it. Yeah. Do you think the film has comparisons with Mad Men, aside from the setting? I don't know. I hadn't really thought of that. In the final season of Mad Men. Don Draper doesn't exactly have a nervous breakdown, but he does walk out of a meeting, get into his car, and then drive across America. Oh, okay. I haven't got. I haven't. I, I kind oh, of. Well, no, no, no. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of knew. I, I think I knew that the the series heads towards a bit of a crisis of confidence for for Don Draper's character, but I don't think I ever got much further than series. So they all started oh. to blow into my mind a little bit after all. It does. It does feel more like a continuing narrative rather than mm. individual episodes. But but I, yeah, I, I can see Boyle as being a kind of Ralph Steadman caricature of Mad Men. Mm. Don Draper growing a boil on his neck that yes. starts lecturing him about yeah. all the terrible things that he's doing. Yes. Yeah. You could. It, it's. They are quite similar characters, I think, because Don Draper again comes across as somebody that's very good. He's not a he's not a bad person, no. but his job entails him doing things which are morally questionable. Mm. Yeah, which is why later on, uh, I think after you watch after the part where you stop watching, even though he can, continues to smoke, he declares unilaterally the agency will no longer work with tobacco producers. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So there is that kind of moral hypocrisy because um, I think the backstory is that um, he, because he stole that person's he stole another soldier's yes, he did, didn't war, he? and he wound up going back and kind of meeting the man's widow, and it turns out they actually got on quite well because he was a horrible man, hmm. and they become friends, and 
he sort of keeps an eye out for her, makes sure she has money and everything, and she winds up dying of lung cancer. Oh, right. And he takes this very personally yes, in his yeah. silent, stoical way. I suppose it's difficult to say, because, of course, obviously, the way that Don Draper and, and Dennis are... It's all D's, isn't it? It is, actually. There's a lot of... Uh, I can't, I've been sitting there wondering, of course, and... and I can't help wondering if there's a coincidence with the fact that, that you've got Dennis O'Brien at Handmade Films. I do vaguely wonder whether Bruce is just having a little bit of a dig. Um, it might just be a coincidence. Wasn't it Dennis O'Brien who turned up after the first week's shooting of Wilhelm and I and told Bruce Robinson that he thought the film was as funny as cancer? It may well have been. I haven't got. I've, uh, the, the, the only reason I've got the name Dennis O'Brien tripping so easily to my lips is because, <laughs> because I'm he's mentioned on every bloody page of that book. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually by a by a coincidence currently reading a history of handmade films, and yes, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm aware of Dennis O'Brien, and I, I'm also vaguely aware from the dark hints that the author is dropping that this is not going to be a story with a happy ending, um, and also because I know what happened to handmade <laughs> films. Um, but yeah, I don't think. I think Dennis O'Brien had very, very fixed ideas of what made films funny, didn't they? Um, Despite his uh, not being in any way a creative person, he yeah. was a money man. Yeah. And George Harrison was the kind of angel investor yeah. type who wasn't a filmmaker, wasn't a storyteller in the same way, but he understood creativity and he knew how to nurture creativity. Mm. So he was quite happy, I think, much of the time to just let people yeah. work, and as long as they don't spend too much money, they can get do whatever they want. No, that, I think that was it, yeah. But yeah, so I do wonder if there's a coincidence in the fact that, that you've got two Dennises there. Yeah. Well, the film does start with this meeting where mm. uh, Dennis is lecturing his colleagues, one of whom is played by Sean Bean. Yes! Who not only is the, the only person other than Richard E. Grant to speak in that scene. He's also billed dead last at the end credits. Yes, he is. It must be virtually... It's not his first film. Oh, right. It's something like his third. But um, it is weird to see... Oh, it's Sean Bean. Mm, no, it was that thing of going, oh, it's, oh my God, it's Thingy. And then having to stop and try to work out exactly who Thingy was because he's considerably younger than... It's, and it's so odd seeing him in an office. Mm. But the other... You, know, you never see him out... You, know, you never see him indoors. No, <laughs> no, that's true. And of course, the other person who turns up who I wasn't expecting was um, Jacqueline Pierce, who died the other day. Oh yes, of course. She's his um, su supreme commander, Serverland. She's got what four lines as Dennis's secretary, mm. and it's an odd performance because I'm not used to seeing her, for want of a better phrase, playing a subservient character. You know, she slunk around the universe in outlandish dresses and high-heeled boots as, as Commander Serverland, and then suddenly here she is, and she's just a secretary. Um, and but, well, she's well, she's more of a PA type. True, because yeah. Dennis clearly treats her with respect. Again, and, yeah. And regards her as a very capable, intelligent mm. person. Again, going going back to, to, to what a good character Richard E. Grant's created... The dialogue he's got, you could have created somebody that was a lot more brusque and snappier and was a bit more unpleasant. But no, again, he gives the impression that yes, he, he likes her and you know he appreciates the job that she's doing. Mm. And there is that thing of sitting there going, oh, it's Jacqueline Fitt. That must be one of her latest 
that must be one of her later roles because I know she had quite a big a, a reasonable film career in the early 70s before Blake 7 came along but then after that you get The Two Doctors this and is it Dark Season where she's basically just playing Serbland again to... where she refused to have her hair dyed so she her character wore a turban oh that's right yes yeah and it works perfectly. Of course it does, yeah. Um, but Dennis concludes his speech with mm. the aphorism that whatever it is, you sell it. And you sell it whatever means you can. You, whether it's high in something, whether it's low in something, whether it contains four new ingredients, whatever it is, you come up with an angle. Mm. And it doesn't matter what it is. Because he's trying to brainstorm a new campaign for a new pimple cream new spot cream even though as he says the market is totally saturated there's nothing about this that is in any way unique or revolutionary yeah but he still has to find an angle for it and he can't do it he's completely blocked yes and then he goes off um i'm trying to uh, trying to remember this he goes off and meets his boss played by richard wilson doesn't he yes and that's another nice that again i really like the the, the, the early scenes of the film it, it sets me on Richard Wilson's a horrible guy because he's got this headset on hasn't he and he's basically just having two conversations at once yes. um, and it's a great again it's a, a great example of, of a throwaway detail that sets up a good character because he's fundamentally well it's like if you've ever been lucky enough to try to be having a conversation with a manager when they're on the mobile phone these days and you know and effectively what they're saying is they don't respect you enough as a worker to discontinue one conversation and actually have a proper conversation with you. And I quite like that as a little throwaway detail. Yes, it, it's just that little way of showing contempt yeah. for one's uh, underlings. Uh, while he's talking, he also mentions that um, of all the other things he's dealt with, piles were like a birthday present. <laughs> yes. And that, I think, is a little callback to Withan and I. Okay. Where there's a line where... Uh, Withnor and Danny the drug dealer are arguing about whether or not Withnor can withstand this drug that Danny has which he's called the embalmer <laughs> and so if, I me- if I medicine you you'd think oh, a brain tumor was a birthday present which is a good line I've trotted out in meetings and how does it go down? Uh, a silence falls <laughs> so you haven't got a head yet Oh yes, <laughs> and um, he met uh, Bristol. The, the the boss says, "Oh, there's there's also another product that we'd like you to look at, just to, if you can uh, uh, consult. It's a ready meal, a boil in the bag." Oh, that's it. Yes, yeah. Which is a nice little. I that got a laugh out of me. It's just a nice little cap yeah. on the scene. But on his way home on the train, there's he's with several other older mm. men in the uh, in the carriage, and one of them is reading aloud. A story from a newspaper about it, one, another of these drugs raids. Yes. And so, oh, there was a bag. There was a bag containing marijuana, and it may also have contained heroin. And Desmond Dennis says, "Or a pork pie." Hmm. Says it may have contained any number of things. What it actually contained is entirely irrelevant. Yeah, it's a very and, and isn't there some reference to a. A topless dancer or something. I forget what the... Are their breasts smeared with peanut butter? That was it, yes, yeah. Which or may or may not have been smeared with. Yeah, it's... Again, it's a very, very sharp 
and for the time quite a percentage piece of writing because I don't think obviously these days we're all aware of the powers of fake news yeah. and the way that language can be twisted so that you can appear to be saying one thing while saying something else but that highlighting of the way that newspapers do use the word may or supposed or sources um, you know it is a, it, it's a very, again a very, a very sharp little piece of writing and it's so long ago it's within spitting distance of the miners' strike yes as long ago as that yeah and a lot of the is it the battle of Orgrave I think where there were subsequently the, the I think it was the battle of well sadly Hillsborough of course the same this came out the year, same year as Hillsborough yeah. and Liverpool has a very long memory about mm, that quite right too I think we should parcel up Calvin McKenzie in a box and send him to Liverpool and then just see what happens. <laughs> I would I would just settle for passing him up and leaving him in a box. <laughs> <laughs> to be delivered to North Pole. Yeah. Oh, it's melted. Oh, never mind. Yeah. And yes, D- Dennis has this epiphany as he's talking because there's a, there's a priest in the, on the train mm. and he says, oh yeah, that, that they're exactly the same. That's, that um, they, they they push a product. Yeah, they push a product, and they both push faith. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is very much going off on a Doctor Who tangent. Did you recognise the priest? It's, yeah, no. It's Milo Clancy. No, from Space Pirates. Well, I, I I don't think I've ever seen I don't think I've ever seen a moving image of Milo Clancy. So well, oh no, of course episode two episode exists, episode doesn't episode. it? But he's but in that he's got a. Hill, you know, hillbilly uh, prospector <sighs> accent in here. He sounds extremely Irish. <laughs> yes. And I don't know which. They both sound fake. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have. Um... The breast was smeared with peanut butter. <laughs> yes. Well, that was it. That was obviously his career. He was hired as an accent man. He gets hired to play a space yokel, going on about what is it? Damn newfangled solar toasters yeah, in a, the a space. space a space prospector who has having scrambled eggs for breakfast in his spaceship. Yes. Because it's 1969. And, and, and is wearing a flannel shirt under his spacesuit. Well, yeah, you know, and he's got an outrageous accent in that. And yes, now they've been given him... If you were able to track through the rest of his career, he's, he's the accents man, obviously. Yeah. He probably did a, he probably did a brilliant Welshman for when Taffrin Thomas wasn't available. <laughs> but they, um, with, the, with the news story, it also points to the, the whole war on drugs issue because it's associating... Mm. A very dangerous drug with a much less dangerous yeah. one. Yes. Even though there is no necessary connection between the two within the actual news story. No, that's right. And again, it's um, it, yes. I think, that, and that's the point they make, isn't it? It's about sort of the use of advertising and the use of advertising techniques to manipulate truth. Mm. As Dennis says, he's an expert on tits and peanut butter. <laughs> yes. Which may well be true. Quite possibly, yeah. And cut to the evening where they're having a dinner party, and he's sitting in the kitchen reading the newspaper while everyone else is eating. That's right, because he can't stand one of the guests, can he? Penny the Herbivore. Penny, that's it, yes. Who. Now, what do you think of her? Because she's set up as being everything that Dennis, the ad man, is not. Mm. And yet, she's also quite obnoxious in her own right. It's interesting that, again, there's. This, and and I, I'm just I'm going to say a succession of things that just sound massively patronising because but there's a there's a real level of skill 
to the to the script because as you say it's not just as simple as Dennis is a nice man oh now he's bad or Penny in a different in in a in a less cleverly written film Penny would have just been obviously nice and Dennis would be picking on her but yes she's she's one of these people doesn't isn't she that goes well advertising doesn't work on me which which is obviously not true because yeah. it works on everybody exactly yes well, ultimately whether you realize it or not unfortunately yes it does um and I think she's also set up to vaguely be somebody that... Well, actually, that's the line Richard has, isn't it? That, that he's, she says she's a vegan, but then doesn't she then say that she eats fish or something? Fish doesn't count. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Well, as Ron Swanson says, it's the closest thing you can get to um, a vegetable. Yeah, I suppose so. Fishing is just for sport. Yeah. Um, men should bleed, she says. And Dennis is, I think, quite rightly disgusted by that kind of talk at his dinner table. I yeah. mean, that's obviously, you know, in feminist terms, that's a reasonable point to make, mm. but not when people are eating. No. <laughs> and again, it's kind of interesting that, and, and I suppose it, it again shows his skill with language and stuff, because when she then tries to take him to task for objecting to her comment on the grounds of sexism, he says, no, I'm just saying that that. Yeah, I'm not saying that, that men should bleed is a disgusting thing to say. I'm saying it was a disgusting thing to say now. And yeah, yeah he's absolutely right. So, the following morning, um, something's happened. Yes, I'm, try- I'm trying. I watched this film all of two days ago. So, <laughs> get a bit hazy on the details. I watched this in chunks, so this okay. might be slightly disjointed. He, he starts to get the boil, doesn't he? Not, not quite yet. Okay. Um... But Julia wakes up and discovers absolute chaos in the kitchen. Oh, that's right. He's wearing an apron and a shower cap and nothing else. Yes. And he seems to be covered in bits of cream from God knows Mm. what. Like a trifle exploded all over him. And he claims to be isolating products of genuine worth. Yes. And this was the bit where the film wrong-footed me because I think I knew in advance that Richard E. Grant gets a boil which turns into a head and oh it's something about advertising and I just assumed that he was you know the the boil was going to come along and he was going to go quietly nuts and it was as I say it would be Reginald Perrin's man's crisis in the face of consumerism and then suddenly there's this whole sequence which doesn't have anything to do with that and I it wrong footed me just because I wasn't expecting it um but yeah, it's quite, and he's got his stuffed chickens down the toilet. To he's he's got a t- there's a radio in the bath because he's washing the brain washer. Yes, and he's planning on doing the vacuum cleaner as well. Mm. And he's clearly having a massive yes. breakdown, which leads me to a question that I probably should have considered the first couple of times I saw this film: Is the boil real? That boil itself is obviously yeah. a real boil. Is it actually growing a face? That's an interesting question because there is obviously there's the sequence, and we might as well jump ahead a little bit now. Uh, but he went the morning when the boil starts talking is when you get the animated birds, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the bit where the film. And I'd love a director's, com- a, a, a director's commentary on this, would be really interesting because I'm not really sure what 
quite what Bruce Robinson's intention is there. I guess it's to kind of say this is the point where when everything's going a bit non, well, obviously going a bit non-naturalistic because there's talking animated birds. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm very bad at reading material because years of reading science fiction has just left me taking everything literally. I read um, Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka and just assumed it was a book about man turning into a beetle. I literally just read it on entirely on the surface level. It never occurred to me that there might be a metaphor going no, on. It's about a man waking up one morning discovering he's Jewish. Yeah, you see, I thought it was mad. Really? Well, it may as well be. Okay. That's the whole point that he that he has suddenly discovered that he is unacceptable. I suppose that, so. that he is monstrous to the rest of society. Um, and at the time, he, that may as well have meant that he was Jewish. Okay, there you go. Yeah, another metaphor. But anyway, the 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 the, the point well, is there's that there's anything wrong with being Jewish, by the way. No, but no, <laughs> there's no, a great bunch of lads. No, not at all. Yeah, to use the <laughs> but it's a society at the time. Yes, yeah. Um, but no, so I I read Metamorphosis. Fine story about a man that turns into a beetle and how his family reacts to it. So yes, I would have been quite happy to watch um, How to Get Ahead in Advertising assume that yes, this is literally a story about a man who grows a talking boil and then it goes all the man who haunted himself. Um, But obviously, but there are cues like the talking birds that I'm not sure whether that is the director going, don't take this bit too seriously or... Don't assume that this is happening yeah, in this... the reality of the film. With the with the talking birds, I mean, in that sequence, uh, Dennis is asleep. Mm. My assumption was, oh, he's dreaming this, because the birds fly around and they fly into the television. Yes, and then he wakes up. Yes, and they're part of the TV screen, aren't they? And I... I think that's kind of the change of point. That's the that's the point where Dennis starts waving goodbye to reality. Mm. I don't know if this is. You can obviously make a case for it. For, for for this to be literally happening because you'd in the hospital when he goes in for the boil operation you literally see the bandages expand and you see the other head come out yeah but but there's no one else in the room no exactly and obviously you never see does the boil ever talk when Richard E. Grant is we see the we see the boil we, we see Richard E. Grant and another voice talking without Richard E. Grant's lips moving. We as the audience. But I don't know if... And, and no other character sees that, do I, they? I don't know if we ever see the two the two mouths, the Poyle's mouth and Dennis's mouth at the same time. No. But even so, we're seeing it from Dennis's point of view. Mm. So it wouldn't matter. None of the other characters ever talk directly to the Boyle. No. Except for that one scene towards the end where... Julia thinks she is. Yes. But, but Dennis says, no, that was me. Yeah. And obviously the sequence at the end where he's talking to himself on the TV set as well, where you could argue that's two different characters talking to each other. Except or, because we've seen half the conversation yeah. recorded earlier in the film. So that's a very neat bit of writing that mm. it's... it's, it's Stephen Moffat might have seen this movie at some point. Funnily enough, that was that was exactly. I, I sat there and I was. I had that moment when I was really surprised at what an effective dramatic device it was to have a character talking to a television set and having the TV set answer back. And that was exactly what I went. And I went, "Hang on, that's Blink." Yeah. And it's a thing of going. I hope Stephen Moffat does have some original ideas. 
I watched a very good video on YouTube last week or week before or something um, that in detail that would shame a coroner pulled apart Sherlock mm. and described in detail why it didn't work, why it was a terrible idea, why Moffat is a genuinely terrible writer and urgently needs someone to sit on his shoulder and tell him when things aren't good enough. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't want this to turn into the the, the, the Stephen Moffat hate hour because I've got a lot... Because <laughs> yeah, this runs for an hour and a half. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would be inaccurate. Um, but we, you know, the gas mask kid Doctor Who story The Empty Child The Empty Child it's terrific and I think a lot of people sort of came away from that first series of Doctor Who thinking that that was the highlight um, Blink is great although as I've subsequently found out two days ago the central device is apparently borrowed from somewhere else mm. um, the, the Girl in the Fireplace was always an odd one because I can see why a lot of people think it's a great story but it leaves me cold I watched that again this week as I'm, I'm gradually working my way through them again and you can see all the connecting tissue mm. and you can see why it doesn't really work. One of the things I really liked, and here we go off on a... One of the reasons why I really liked Blink at the time was because they obviously did the Next Time trailer and it's, um, oh no, we're being attacked by clockwork robots, Doctor, come and help us. And you go, yeah, yeah, well, I know how this story's going to go. And then you start watching, you start watching The Girl in the Fireplace and the next time trailer is the opening two minutes of the programme. Yeah. And I thought that was a really clever piece of writing. But, I mean, jumping back to... It's interesting to go back and watch The Curse of Fatal Death because a lot of Stephen Moffat's writing texts are in that. There's a character that doesn't know when to die. There's the whole, oh, look, I'm going back in time to do this and I've gone back in time to thwart you're going back in time and now I've gone back in time to thwart... And it's just really odd because it was all there in plain... A lot of the stuff that Stephen Moffat gets criticised for now is hidden in plain sight. The master with breasts. Yes, <laughs> yeah, in a way. Um, and the fact that there's a lot of heavy-handed jokes about the difference between men and women. and so, Yeah. Well, have you seen Coupling? No, I missed that one. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> but uh, we seem to have drifted from the point slightly. A little. Only a little. Um... So he's having a huge breakdown. Yes. And he goes into his office and he looks like death. Mm. Yes, he, he re- genuinely looks really unhealthy. Because he's, he's got red eye. And it's one of those moments as well that this, must, this would have probably been a great film to see in the cinema, I suspect. Because you get some quite good close-ups just of these horrible red eyes. And he does look really unhealthy. And he confronts Bristol with an ad he designed for an anti-smoking commercial that was ditched, mm. which was that cigarettes could come in a soft pack, ordinary packet, or a hard pack, a coffin. Mm. And he said, well, you know, why, does it, why does it say may damage your health? Can damage your health. Yes. Will lead to fatal illness. You know, keep, keep away from, yeah. from anyone. And it's an, obviously that's an interesting point, because that always was the message, wasn't it? Was cigarettes can. Can, yeah. may, might. And it's like the joke about... Um, the the the, yeah, the the terrible joke about your know, cigarettes may cause fetal abnormality. Well, I found my brand. Yeah. <laughs> but Bristol tells him that he had a similar situation that mm. he got 
incredibly wound up working on a, a gas heating system campaign and thought that he was going to spontaneously combust. Yes. And so he was, I was drinking 25 pints of water a day. I even bought a fire extinguisher. <laughs> and so, well, why did you bother? You'd have been pissing like a fire engine. <laughs> but he, you know, he went away. He took two mm. months off. He rested. He relaxed. He got his head together. And he came back and he was stronger was than And that, which, of course, is what effectively what happens in... That's the plot of the rest of the film, isn't it? Exactly. They're telling you what's going to happen in the yeah. rest of the movie. And it does, and it is it, do, it it is that interesting thing, as you say, of then, so yes, how much of this is, is real, how much of this is just... And there's, there's a scene shortly after, which I, sort of, I think nicely underlines Dennis's lifestyle, which is that he's been putting mustard on the boil, which is... Oh, amazing. that's right, yeah. And he <laughs> says, oh, have you been using the English mustard? Oh, this is the English mustard. I said, no, it's, it's the Dijon with fine herbs. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> God. They're so bourgeois. Yes. They don't even have ordinary Dijon mustard. And just from a visual point of view as well, it's great because he spends a chunk of the film with like this horrible yellow mess cake. Oh, yeah. yeah, it just looks vile. It, I mean, the, the prosthetics work mm. and the makeup work is so good. Yes. But it's absolutely stomach churning. <laughs> yeah. The, the initial shot is it the initial shot of the boil opening its eye? And says, hello, handsome. It's really, it looks fantastic. It's, it's monstrous. I mean, yeah. it's, like, it's like David Cronenberg yeah. having a nightmare. It's really, um, I, I, to, to the point almost where I can't quite work out exactly how they've done it. But I assume it's just, just very, very good makeup and prosthetics. Prosthetics and, and cables running down Richard E. Grant's yeah. back. Did you recognise the voice of the boy? You probably didn't. I didn't. Um, I w- that was what I wasn't clear about. And at this, because at this point I was still kind of expecting the film to go one way. Um, I kind of wasn't sure if the boy was Richard E. Grant mumbling a bit, but it was somebody different, was it? And the the last part of the film where Dennis becomes the boy, and the boy has become uh, prime head. Mm. The boy is then Richard E. Grant. Yeah. But um, for the rest, for the earlier part of the film, it's Bruce Robinson. Oh, okay. Interesting. And there's another vocal cameo, which is really obvious when you know who it is. The two cartoon birds. Mm. The male bird is Eric Idle. I didn't pick up on that at all. Yeah. Okay. It's when you when you listen yeah. listen to again. It's, it sounds exactly like him. Yeah. He's not even bothering. He's, he's doing like a very high-pitched American accent, but it's of course it's Eric Idle. Hmm. So there's a little Python connection there. Yeah, yeah, which again makes sense with Handmaid because they did occasionally like to, to throw in these Python references when they got a chance, but yeah. There's no, there's no Python connection with Withnall, is there? There's no sort of any, anybody working on it Don't directly so. apart from... Apart from him, I mean, it's set in September '69, so mm. it's about a month before the first episode aired. Yeah. But. Uh... No, I don't think. But I, it's, it's, I don't think there's a, a particular. But just the, 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 I'm kind of at the point in the the, the history of handmade films now where they've made Yellow Beard and they've made the miss uh, the missionary and things, and they've made Privates on Parade. And there's always this attempt from Dennis O'Brien to get another Python film made yeah. and to turn projects into Python. Films, even if they weren't, uh, didn't lend themselves. Yeah, you know, 
I mean, I, I, I saw Privates on Parade a while ago, and it's, it's an odd one. It's based on a play. Mm. It's, it really doesn't feel like it would lend itself to any kind of Python project. I think John Cleese is miscast. Yeah. Because he's very obviously being pushed to play the character as Basil Fawlty. To yes. the point where he even does a silly walk at the end of the movie. Yeah, and I think that may have that that was was a bit that they kind of tacked on at the end to try to make it a and, bit. And some parts of the film are very dark. Mm. There's there's one character who's a, a traitor and starts shooting his own men, and it's playing oh, totally yeah. straight, totally serious, and it's really horrifying. Okay, I mean it's interesting again that that's Eric Idle because Dennis O'Brien, <laughs> Dennis O'Brien, God bless him, fires Eric Idle from handmade films. I forget. The, wow, I mean, it's, the, it's, it's like only one of them could live. Yeah, it, it's. It, 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 I forget the exact circumstances that lead up to it. Now, that's the, the slightly frustrating thing. But they, they have a disag- They have a disagreement. Um, presumably, it must be in the wake of Life of Brian or Live at the Hollywood Bowl or something. But yeah, De- Dennis O'Brien announces that he's he's fired Eric Idle, and of course, nothing kind of happens, and then um, Eric Idle just continues to come back in and make use of that but it's just interesting that Bruce Robinson was able to get by 1989 I think that the relationship between handmade films and then the Monty Python team had, had largely broken down so I wonder if Bruce Robinson again is this another dig getting Eric Idle back in somebody who had fallen out with Dennis O'Brien earlier on maybe they just so, yeah. like the voice who knows this is why we need a director's commentary yeah I mean, uh, Robinson always seemed to... I mean, because there was no direct connection, because he was... He found Handmade after doing mm. The Killing Fields. So he wasn't really part of the whole Handmade thing. He wasn't really part of Dennis O'Brien. And he'd previously been in big conflicts with Dennis O'Brien. Yeah. So he and the Pythons were sort of... The enemy of the enemy is my friend. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. But no, it's funny, I did, did, wouldn't have picked up that that was, was Eric Idle at all. I'll, I'll play it to you yeah. afterwards, because it's once, once you know, think, oh, of course it is! Yeah, yeah. I, don't know who the, I don't know who the female voice is there, which annoys me. I think it might be the singer from later in the movie. Okay, that would make sense. It kind of never occurred to me that they might get... I think I just assumed it was somebody, put, you know, it was somebody putting on a silly voice, but... But it is, it's Eric Idle. Well, yes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so it's, you know, somebody within the cast. But yeah, that's interesting that it's Bruce Robinson playing the Boyle in the early in the early scenes, at least. The evil Boyle. Yeah. Because, again, it would be very easy to get all kind of pseudo-intellectual about this. And is this the writer talking directly to the... You know, is this the writer talking directly to the audience? And effectively, almost kind of doing a Dennis Potter thing, where you kind of go, "None of this is, none of this is happening." So don't take it too seriously. Well, we also get, as as the the boilers revealed, we get this blast of organ music, which I think is um, some sense third symphony, mm. um, and it, as in slow motion. His eyes boggle out of his head. He collapses to the floor of the bathroom. Oh, that's right, and everything falls. Yes, and again, you see that that's the that kind of very over the top horrified reaction is that's the Richard E. Grant that people will be casting. And he's running, screaming around, screaming around the garden, arms flailing with something like a with a blanket around his shoulders, like a cape or something as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I recall that that's, I think, where the ad break was put in when I first saw the movie, that it's, it, okay. it goes from him running around the garden screaming his head off. 
than to to a commercial to brand. a commercial. This must be an odd film to watch with commercials. Well, it's Channel Four. Yeah, but just the the thing that you're basically watching somebody deconstructing how commercials work and the language they use and why they're all bad for you. And now here's some here's some stuff for you to buy. Well, that's why it was. I was so baffled when the BBC lost the rights to Mad Men. And yeah. it wound up on Sky. Yeah, that's true. Which charges you a fortune in subscription fees and then shows you fucking commercials as well. Mm. I don't like Sky. Yeah. Um, so the, the doctor arrives, chases, <laughs> chases yes. basically wrestles him to the ground yeah. and injects him in the bottom. Um, that's, and then puts him on a course of pills, doesn't he? And uh, is that when the boil starts talking yes because they're well, having an evening to to yeah that's it oh that's right because it goes hello handsome doesn't yeah. it and that's what yeah not unreasonably what sparks the hysterical reaction and then yes but then they're having they're trying to have the nice evening meal where nothing strange can happen and yeah. the boil starts spouting advertising slogans yeah. I think, doesn't... and dennis is trying to sort of cover up for it mm. and say oh nothing and there's the, again he's it's it, it's the richard e grant performance but it's dialed back. So mm. he has this wild staring look in his eyes and this rictus grin as he's desperately pretending that everything's fine. But you can see that he's disintegrating it mm. before your eyes. But what I think, I suppose the other thing we, we probably ought to say, or the other thing I vaguely feel obliged to say at this point, is that it's also a very good performance from, and I don't have her name to hand. Rachel um, Ward. Rachel Ward as... Um, Julia. Julia. <laughs> Anything else? I did all, said, said all that without, uh, you know, it, I just have a command of facts instantly. Am I? Um, it, but it's, she's not overwhelmed. You know, the fact that she's up against Richard E. Grant doing early proto Richard E. Grant, but she's not overwhelmed by it. Um, she's a very solid character. She's a very strong. She, her character is not a pushover. No. She's a good match for Dennis because they're both quite tough yeah. in their own ways. And she's very supportive she's trying to humor mm. him and be gentle but nevertheless not so she's calling him on yes. the weird stuff yeah she's not just letting it slide and i think that makes it a much more interesting mm. conflict between the two of them because it's not one-sided no that's right the boy starts talking about paris it's what's well, what why, do you, why, why does the boy want to go to Paris? I don't know, maybe the fucker wants to go up the Eiffel Tower. Yes. And then the following day, he's got a cardboard box around his head. Yes. And he's talking into a video camera because he's leaving a video message for Julia and he's wearing the box to sort of keep a barrier between his his mouth That's and he's... the boil so the boil doesn't hear him because it's still asleep mm. and he suspects that within a week or so he'll have had a lobotomy yes and weirdly you know what this reminds me of and it's probably just a coincidence do you remember towards the end of Babylon 5 when it was going a bit rubbish and London Malawi had a thing on his neck that used to sleep and he had to talk softly to keep from waking it up when he was plotting against it it's I don't. It's almost certainly a coincidence, but is it? It sounds pretty it's, cut and dry. Yeah, to me. it's strange, isn't it? It's just odd how you suddenly find find echoes of things. And and yeah, you know, if if it was with Nell, if uh, the guy who wrote Babylon, Michael Straczynski, Straczynski, yeah, I always feel like I need to take a run up before I have a go at his name. Um, but 
again, yes, you know, he was a big fan of British media, a big fan of Blake Seven and stuff, I think. Um, well, everyone in Hollywood seems to be a big fan of Blake Seven oh, yeah, these days. <laughs> apparently, yes. Yeah, it's the new cool show to Rob Schraub, Nicholas Winding Refn. Really? Big names. Blimey. Nicholas Winding Refn is a big fan of British telefantasy. Wow, good for him. <laughs> But, it, and, and in fact, actually, am I right? It's been ages since I, I used to have a copy of Richard E. Grant's uh, diaries. Went to a charity shop a few years ago, saw me, Richard. The front cover of that was a picture of him with a box on his head. Yes, yeah. but it was a publicity shot because he looks cheerful. Yes, and that's not, true. And not like he's about to die. Yeah. And the, the image of him talking into a camera and to tell, to tell the truth about advertising... He does remind me of those crackpots you get on YouTube. Mm. Yes. So it's invented that as well. Well, it's interesting. And a few years later, he presumably would have been wrapping his head in tin foil. It's just interesting that this was kind of before the tin foil. The tin foil The, had the tin foil craze. revolution, yeah. But the boy wakes up, so he goes to get a cigarette yeah. to keep it quiet. From uh, Vivian's mum from The Young Ones. Oh, is that who yeah. she is? Well, she's the cleaner. Yes. And he's rummaging around her handbag. And the cleaner is clearly. A little bit perturbed by yeah. the sight of Dennis running around with a box on his head. And announcing that he's given up and that the cigarette isn't for him. It's not, it's not for him, he's just going to hold it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he's, he's persuaded to go to a psychiatrist. <laughs> and the, um, in their conversation, um, uh, Dennis says, well, the, the only reason I... So we're going to, oh, we're going to talk about this. That's the only reason I agreed to come down off the garage roof. Yeah. So to filling in this little one-off detail. And we don't get too much of this sort of reference to off-screen mm. events. That's the only one. Yeah. And I think it's just, yeah, I can imagine that. I think that's the thing, is it's one of those... It's a, it's a terrific example of how something works funnier when you get to imagine it yourself. Because you could have... You could have written that entire scene, and it would probably have been all right, but it would probably have gone on a bit too long it would have been a bit a bit too much like when they're chasing around the garden yes but it, it works it's a really funny reference and it creates its own little world because as you say you know, I, I know exactly how that scene played out I don't actually need to see it but um, he does start to invoke Orwell mm. about how advertising conspires with Big Brother and how people will, willingly stare at the box in the corner of the room yes and I, I don't know, I, I don't consider myself enough of an expert necessarily to, to pick up on a lot of the references to all that stuff. I mean, this was 89, wasn't it? So it was five years after everybody... Basically, the British journalism through the 80s was 1984, everyone wrote loads of really tedious articles about how we weren't living in Airstrip 1. And then three years later, they wrote loads of tedious um, articles about Sergeant Peppers that all began, it was 20 years ago today. Yeah. Yes, I don't think they um, were talking much outside their own bubble. No. Because I think for a lot of people in the UK, 1984 was a lot like 1984. Minors, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. It depended who you. It, it depended entirely who you spoke to. Yeah. If you were in the um, newspaper columnist sector, mm. presumably it was all uh, champagne and caviar. Yeah, and um, and then every Friday night VHS tapes and uh, unless Lester Curry's yeah, unless you're unlucky enough to be one of the Times journalists that was working at Wapping, of course, in which case I think oh, I can't remember her name now, 
the leader of Soga would shout scab at you loudly through your car windscreen as you were trying to go home. Jelaine Greer? No, it was Brenda somebody or other. I wish I could remember her name now. She was all... Pardon? Brenda Bruce? No, I don't think so. She was the she was the trade union leader of, of I'm sure it was called Sogad, and they were all she was quite a familiar fixture on the TV news for a while. But particularly when when all the whopping uh, journalism stuff was was very very raw. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's um, but no, as you say, if you were one of the people that was protesting outside Green and Common, and you saw your protest being written off as loony. How was it the sun used to loony lefties. loony lefties and all that kind of thing? Yeah, which is the kind of it's the kind of pejorative that we still see today. Mm, yeah, with people talking about Jeremy Corbyn, and um, you know I don't want to get into the whole thing about whether or not he hates Jews because I think it's fairly obvious looking at the evidence that he doesn't. He's just not very good at regulating that within his own party. Yeah, because too many stupid people equate criticizing Israel with disliking Jewish people. Yeah. That seems like a reasonable summary to me. But obviously that doesn't sell newspapers. He's not a natural leader, I don't think, which is a bit of a problem. Mm. But he he's someone whose voice needs to be heard because a lot of the others sound the same as each other. Yeah. I'm not a member of the Labour Party, never have been, so I'm allowed <laughs> to say this sort of thing without being fired from anything. Fair enough. Um... Dennis says that they're cutting down jungles to breed hamburgers. Yes, that's right. His um his Holocaust speech, isn't it? Because he says yeah. that he's going to go on and he's going to demonstrate how advertising is responsible for Holocaust. I think. Yes, but I think that there'll be nowhere left to go because we'll all be sleeping in the the back seats of hatchbacks as they slowly circle towards the next slag heap. Mm. Because it's to, it'll just use up all the resources of the world in this pursuit of capitalism and consumerism. Yeah. Yes, there's a... In fact, interestingly enough, I think it was around this time that Ben Elton wrote a play called Gasping or something. And, and that, again, was yet another satire on advertising and um, uh, consumerism. Um, I think it might even have been the first thing he kind of wrote that wasn't sort of a, a sitcom or stand-up. Um and it was about, the idea was that it was about an advertising agency that discovers that they can sell fresh air to people. And the idea, from memory, the idea is that you buy a little canister of fresh air and that whenever you're sort of overwhelmed by the smells or stenches of all the people around you on the underground, you give yourself this little blast. And it's the classic example of people selling you something that you already have access to. Mm. Um, like ownership of the post office. Yes, or the uh, yes, pretty much the post office or the railways or any other number of. Um... Mm. The psychiatrist also asks Dennis if he's been masturbating recently, to which his reply is constantly. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a talking boil on my neck. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose it passes the time. Also, his grandfather molested a wallaby. Yes, um, and that's used as, but he had a bad experience in the First World War. So. Yes, it's. Um, the treatment given towards mental health um, patients that Dennis's grandfather was clearly very ill mm. and it manifested itself in something which is in yeah. a film really funny yes. in real life horrifying yeah. um, if one takes as read that Dennis is 
mentally ill or was, was having a mm. an episode of poor mental health and that the boil is in fact not talking yeah how do you think the film what kind of attitude do you think the film takes with regards to the treatment of mental health patients do you think that I, as, a, as someone suffering from poor mental health Dennis is being treated reasonably I think it's it's kind of difficult to tell because he's obviously wealthy enough to this is all private treatment I don't think there's I don't think he's ever in the, the hands of the NHS. The hospital at the end feels like it's the NHS. It doesn't feel like a booper hospital to me. Okay. I mean, he's been given fish fingers and ketchup to I me. suppose that's true. But he might have ordered that specially from the restaurant. They might be ironic fish fingers. Um, you know, from that, ca- from that hipster cafe somewhere in the east end of London that serves you cereals and then charges you a fortune for them. I find it very difficult to be upset when people say they're throwing paint at that place. I mean... Yes, it's breaking. They never break the windows. Breaking windows would be too far. Yeah, but throwing paint at the place and um, shouting at the staff and calling them wankers, I think uh, <laughs> that that's just about within the bounds of acceptability. Yeah, yeah, it's and following it, them home. I think would be a bit. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Would, that would would be a bit you know criminal and uh, stalkery. But um, I have little patients for trust fund wankers but again but it's also it's about that thing of commodifying so it's taking something and selling it back to you as a luxury exactly when uh, this is gonna sound whole yeah it's it, it, it's take it's commodifying something and taking it and selling it back to you as a luxury when some people struggle or are relying on food banks to buy the same stuff that other people are paying over the odds are because it's ironic yes it's, it's the bubble again. It's people mm. being isolated from the consequences of their own actions. Yeah. I'm sure they were delighted by all the free publicity anyway. I mean, the fact that I've heard of it, I couldn't tell you what the the place is called, but the fact that I've heard of it, I'm sure all publicity is good. As, as Dennis would probably say, all publicity is good publicity. I think we've... Just, oh, Dennis O'Brien or Dennis Bagley? I think either. Right. <laughs> At this point, either. <laughs> By this point, they may as well be the same person. Quite possibly, yes. If only Ringo Starr were to appear at the end of the film <laughs> and, and, I don't know, have a fist fight or... Or just explain what the moral was or something. Or Dennis co-ops Thomas the Tank Engine to advertise... It, it, no, because he hates trains, doesn't he? He does hate trains. And I think he... He smashes up Thomas the Tank Engine. Yes, yeah. I think he hates trains. Interestingly, again, for for a lot of the same reasons that it, it, it's a it's a it's a subplot in um, Ben Elton's novel Gridlock, where they're planning to privatise the world. Imagine that that the, 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 a, a book that's outraged about potential plans to privatise the railway industry. What a ghastly country that would be to live in, wouldn't it? Oh, I can't imagine. No, um, but. They're planning to they're planning to privatise the railway industry, break it up into its component parts, and basically do a beaching on it and close it down as much as possible. And what's left will be called Brit Track. Um, and the reason they hate trains is because you can't own them because you have to share them with other people. Mm. Um, and again, it's 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 just interesting that a lot of the same. Obviously, we'd come through the 80s at that point. I forget when Harry Enfield was doing loads of money. Again, it was all around this time. And that's, and that's what, one of the reasons why I wonder if, if, 
if How to Get Ahead in Advertising didn't make so much of an impact because it was part of it was much more part of the conversation that was going on at the time anyway about consumerism and stuff like that. Whereas, as I say, with Nell and I was actually deliberately out of step. But from what we've both read in Grant's diaries, mm. he has published these diaries, we didn't break into his house. <laughs> no. um, it does seem to have had a big impact in the US. Yes. Where, because all, all these things I mentioned, like loads of money, Ben Elton, that kind of thing, they're all very British. Yes, they are. Where there was seemingly very little satire or kind of questioning the status quo in this way in the US, where the 80s carried on yeah. up until um, Bill Clinton was elected. Yeah, pretty much. And I think, I, I don't, I, I probably shouldn't be claiming to speak as, as any kind of representative of of American culture but I think Bill Hicks may have been the only person that was kind of railing against that sort of thing and he kind of had to come over here to do that mm. yeah it's odd isn't it um, I'm struggling to think what sort of stuff was coming through from America at the time the Cosby Show that was, Cosby Show was safely aspirational wasn't it the Cosby Show was it was a very middle of the road form of progressiveness because mm. it was showing a a wealthy affluent african-american family yeah. but it was very, they were definitely aspirational yes he, yeah. he, you know, he was a doctor you know they were very, you know, very upper middle class and it, it's a soft republican yeah not, sp- not fantasy because it, you, know, they, you know it was moderately realistic I sp- it wasn't it wasn't unbelievable no i, I suppose you had um oliver stone didn't you when did he do wall street 87. 87, but that Oliver Stone just shrieking at stuff anyway. I mean, <laughs> just always just shouting at things. Yeah. Um, yeah, but no, you're right. It, it, and it does seem... But it's interesting. I think one thing we haven't really talked about so much is um, is, is Richard E. Grant's film diary book with Nails, which I annoyingly haven't now read for several years because when I went to look for a copy of it in my local library, it's, it's gone AWOL. Um but there is no chapter about making how to get ahead in advertising, is there? No, there isn't. Um, and considering that there's one about making Warlock, you think? <laughs> well, in, well, it's it's maybe just in terms of the narrative of the stories that he's telling. Yeah. Because like, Warlock was his first true, into Hollywood, and it was, so it was all this this new world, and it's all very strange, and he's and, finding it all a bit weird and difficult to get. Out and of. it's Richard E. Grant action hero. That's the other thing. Yes, um, it's, and it's he's so horribly miscast. <laughs> Whereas with with this, he's working in the UK mm. in an environment he knows with people he knows. Yeah, with people he's worked with before. Yeah, on a production that was probably quite well supported, that probably went really smoothly. Mm. He probably doesn't have that many fascinating stories yeah. about how it was made. But it's just interesting that it just adds to the impression that this is a film that's kind of been overlooked. I've, uh, again, flicked ahead in the book about the history of handmade films, how to get an advertising. They acknowledge that they made it and that it wasn't particularly commercially successful. But that's about as far as it goes. And of course, the ultimate insult is your—is it the Blu-ray set? Yes, um, it's available on Blu-ray only in a now out-of-print special edition of Woodman and I, where it's mentioned in tiny print on the back that it's in there. It's a special feature, as, isn't it? As a special feature on a second disc. Um, it's from Arrow, and Arrow normally have reversible covers. Mm. Oh. And this does. It's got a cover of Whitman and I on the front, and on the inside it's got another cover of Whitman and I. It's almost <laughs> exactly the same. Okay. Uh, you can get it on DVD, however. Yes. With one extra. 
which okay. is a short interview with the production designer. It's quite interesting, yeah. but they probably could have done a bit more than that. So with the boil now having evolved into a full head, mm. complete with moustache, yes. uh, Dennis is wheeled into hospital as the psychiatrist says in voiceover that the boil represents the intolerable side of himself and that he cannot accept the guilt of it. So he's externalised yeah. this as his own private big brother. In fact, is this is this the point that reveals that this is all happening in Dennis's head? Because nobody has... Presumably at this point the boil has been poked and examined by top medical professionals. Yes. Uh, and nobody's, nobody else has spotted anything odd about it. Um... So maybe that's th- maybe that's the the point that you say that well, that this is this is the sign that it's just all happening in his head then, and that yes, the the psychiatrist is absolutely right. He's just it's the the boil itself is a real boil. Yes. The idea that it's a separate head, yeah, is just his own conscience unable to deal with his own hypocrisy. Exactly. Yeah. So he's outsourced it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's privatized it. While he's in hospital awaiting the operation, he argues with the boil about whether or not he's a communist. He says, oh, you want to take everyone's car away. Yes, and it's that. It's interesting, again, that the debate is carried out in that very kind of, for want of a better phrase, sun, sun journalism style way. Where, Bad faith. Yes, yeah, yeah, where, where if you say that um, you think that cars should be more environmentally friendly it's immediately where well, you want everyone to ride around in a pony and trap it's that sort of you know, as you say is that arguing in bad faith is this having just said that the the fact that the boil has been examined by medical examiners is proof that it's all happening but the scar is on the other side isn't it as if they've removed as if they've operated on the boil that was richard e grant's head so that's then proof that what we're seeing is literally true. But when we see the scar, the scar is across a little face. Mm. And a lot of the time he's looking in the mirror as well. But it's still on the side that it would have been... The doctors it... would have noticed, though. Yes, possibly. I'm in danger of getting tangled up in my own... I think, I think it's safe to assume that any time the boil is talking, it's happening in Dennis's yes. head. Yeah. So, whatever we see, reality has just been uh, mm. bent around whatever needs to happen. It's fantasy. To it's but I think it's very, it walks a very, very good line where you can't say for sure that, yes, this is definitely all in his head, or no, this is definitely happening. It's again, it's, it's very well constructed. The point is that he believes it's real, yes, which is what what counts really. Yeah, and if if it's easier to swallow, yes, um, that by thinking that it's all in his head, mm. then that's the point that the story wants to get across. Whether or not it's real, I think is yeah. secondary to the point that Robinson wants to make. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And you get a nice little. Uh, it's it's almost. I, I, it, it's a, almost a kind of an American wealth in London transformation scene in the hospital, isn't it? Where it's the... possibly the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in a film. Really? Okay. It's absolutely hideous. Not just because one head is suddenly expanding Expand, like yeah. a balloon mm. on his neck, and you, and the, the bandages stretch, 
and he's unwrapping mm. one head and, and smothering the other, one. the other one. Yeah, but he's screaming in horror as it's happening at the same time. Mm. And then the new head starts pouring ketchup all over these fish fingers and just shoving them in his mouth. And the ketchup's going all over his face and he's chewing with his mouth open. It's all going everywhere. And it's... (laughs) I wanted to throw up. It's absolutely disgusting. Yeah. But it's supposed to be. Yeah, of course. But it's... It's consumerism gone mad, isn't it? Yeah. Who puts ketchup on fucking fish fingers? Okay, I'm... You don't put ketchup on fish. Oh, What kind dear. of philistine is he? <laughs> Have I been badly brought up? Yes. Oh, dear. You don't put ketchup on fish. You have white sauce on fish. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, I've been badly... Sorry. Drink, I... I bet you drink red wine with fish as well. Red, red wine? <laughs> they do have red wine. <laughs> You're not supposed to drink cider out of plastic bottles, either. It enhances the flavour. <laughs> Yeah, and as he's being carted away, he screams, you're going to lance the wrong yes. head. Yeah. It's, just, it's just, it's like a nightmare. It suddenly it's goes, horrible. It, it, it does suddenly go a bit elephant man. I think it was the, the shot of the head being wrapped in bandages and stuff. And yeah, yeah. it suddenly all goes very sort of elephant man. And, and yeah, it's, 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 it's pitiful. And it's also quite, because of course, um, Dennis is quite a passive, or that, that head of Dennis's is is quite a passive head, so it can't really. It's not really the, the the decisive risk taking parts of Dennis's personality are in the bad are in the boil. Yeah. And the nice passive. Um, let's all be good. Let's, let's all, all be nice. The conscience bits are in the other. So 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 yes. Yeah, so once the transformation takes place, the. Dennis isn't in a position to take acts uh, to, to take any action against this usurper because those qualities that would have allowed him to take action are all in the are all in the moustache yes. head. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing that it's the ones who are willing to make loud noise and mm. trample, regardless of any consequences, are often the ones who win. Unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. Whereas those who are caring and considerate. Yeah. Like you and me, of course. Well, obviously, yes. And our listeners. Yes. Apart from you, Ollie. Well, yeah. <laughs> don't tell him we said that. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, so Dennis is back at work. Yeah, and doing really well. Driving his big, nice, big car. Yeah, exactly as his boss predicted. With yes. his, with his moustache, looking like a spiv. Yeah, yes, he does, doesn't he? And he's come up with a radical scheme of how to sell the pimple cream. Yeah, um, which is to make pimples fashionable, isn't it? Which is first to make pimples fashionable, to cultivate them, and then, when everyone's got them, then you sell the cream. Mm. You massively increase the market. And the cream, did you see what it's called? There's some uh, background Is it called Final Solution? Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of Holocaust. Yes, yeah. Intr- yeah, and it's never really, and it, to, to the point where I wasn't kind of sure if I'd misread it or misinterpreted. But they never mention it by name, do they? They do. Oh, do they? But they do in terms of it, of that being a placeholder name. Well, yeah. Because they mentioned earlier on that the, 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 the cream doesn't actually have a, a name yet, mm. and so they clearly the art department just mocked up some artwork, yeah. and they've called it Final Solution as a bad joke. Yes. Yeah. And. Dennis mentions later, oh, yes, we're calling it that, we're going to change it to something sensible. So we have this very 80s version of My Generation, sung by oh, a, right. a singer who's covered in unsightliness. 
and he's smoking smoking gun. Yes, he is, isn't he? That's right. And uh, at, at night, Julia is watching television to avoid having to go to bed with him. Mm. And she's watching a film with Mel Smith. Is it Young Frankenstein? No, because no, he's Mel not Smith in. isn't in that. No, he's not in. What am I? Yes, Mel Smith. I don't know. I, I, I don't look. I couldn't figure out what it was. Why it's did a, I it's think something it was black and white where he's playing a butler in what looks like a big country house, and I, th- I thought that maybe it was just a little specially shot, could be off cut of something. It might just be a gag. Yeah, it could just be. Yeah, no, it's a. It's always that odd thing with. Um, films that nothing get, nothing ever gets in by accident. You know, if a character turns on the TV and something's on, it's not like they just said, oh, let's just film whatever's on, because that's the nightmare to license. So that was obviously intended. Yeah, maybe it's just a throwaway gag. Maybe it's... Maybe, maybe, it's, it's, some, maybe it's something that we're not aware of that Han may yeah. have in its catalogue that they could use for free. That's true. Maybe it's just Bruce Robinson going to Mel Smith, oh, I'm going to put you in my next film. <laughs> and, yeah, but it may just it may just be a joke, yeah. But for some reason, I, th- I think it's because it was black and white. And then I think I'd obviously got Mel- managed to confuse Mel Smith with Marty Feldman, which is what made me think it was Young Frankenstein. But, yeah. Physically, he's a bit more Peter Boyle, I'd say. Yes. But uh, they did feel that Mel Smith went on to be a very successful director as well. Yeah. Yes, yeah, he did. He did the first Mr Bean film. That's true. He didn't direct more ones from outer space, did he? No, that, that, was, was, some... that was Mike Hodges, director of Get Carter, <laughs> who has one of the weirdest film CVs you've ever yeah. seen. Get Carter, Flash Gordon. Did he do Flash? More ones from outer space and Croupier, I'm, uh, the film that made Clive Owen the international star that he is today. I've got a massive... I, I genuinely have got a, 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 an unapologetic love for Flash Gordon, and I'd never picked up that it was directed by... The same guy that did Get Carter. You couldn't get two more different films. Of the, you know, yeah. The, the grim, grey, documentary bleakness of, of the reality of the British criminal underworld yeah. of Get Carter. One of, one of the, I think, the great crime films of all time. And the insane, day-glow, yeah. you know, rock opera cartoon that is... Yes, Flash Gordon. The only person off the top of my head that's got a comparably weird career is... Is it Mick Jackson? The guy that directed Threads? And L.A. Story. And uh, Volcano with Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, just, fasc- you know, just fascinating the way people's careers take them in odd directions. Well, Wes Craven had a, a, a very interesting blip where his entire career was horror movies. Mm. Every film he directed was a horror movie, except for Music of the Heart, an inspirational inner-city drama starring Meryl Streep. Okay, yes. I can't say I've heard of that one. Apparently it was a passion project that he got off the ground after Scream was a big hit. And it's the only non-horror film he ever did. God. Oh, well, good for him for getting his passion project off the ground. Yeah. It looks like turning down Superman 4 wasn't as bad a career choice as people thought. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. Um, Julia tells Penny that she's been having a dream that the Boyle has been talking mm. to her, that Dennis uh, has something in his briefcase that she needs to see. That's right, and she's been whispering a straight... Has he been whispering numbers to her as well? And that, that keeps whispering zero, zero, zero. That's it. But, and also... <laughs> Dennis is talking to 
the good Boyle yes. in the mirror. And, it, and he's a lot... Even when he's dialed back, he's still extravagantly evil. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, there is this fact, there, there, there is this sense that if you look on it, that yes, he, he had a breakdown and he's come back from it. He has kind of exercised the the nice parts of his... Uh, th- this is where kind of where I thought the film went a bit, the man who haunted himself. Yes. Um, and again, where it wrong-footed me, because I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, where's, where's this going? Because this isn't... The story. This isn't quite how I expected the story. I think if you'd sat me down at the start of the film and asked me how I expected it to play out, it would be crisis of confidence in advertising. Thinks he can't do it to get the big account. Gets a talking boil. The talking boil then somehow pitches him ad- pitches him ideas for the advert. And oh yes, I see. Yeah, and it, it, I think it, I, what I'm kind of picturing is a version of like what women want, but with more um, skin to me conditions. Sounds, to me, it sounds more like Aladdin, but if the genie was a boil. <laughs> yes, yeah, and it's just in it wrong footed me because I, I, as I say, I'd got this very vague idea of how I thought it was going to go, and and it's just whizzing off in all kinds of directions. Evil Dennis says that he's not only burnt the mm. film that Dennis put together, but also Julia's diaphragm. Oh, that's right. Yes, because he's planning to have a, he's planning to spawn. Yeah. And he talks about it in the the most of unpleasant. Yes, and then and then the shaggings <laughs> to begin. And you hear little Dennis going, "Oh no." <laughs> yes. At the uh, they're having a big party for their wedding anniversary, mm. and Dennis delivers a very flattering. Yeah. Uh, very sincere speech about how important Julia is to him. But I suppose, again, you could argue at that point he's become the ultimate salesman, so he's capable of selling sincerity. Yeah. It's it's just ad copy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he says that 50% of politics is creating a problem, and the rest is solving it. And he mentions the whole hydrogen bomb. Yes. Things. But while he's dancing with the girlfriend of a colleague, the little boil starts talking up. Yes, because the boy, am I? The Boyle thinks he's dancing with his wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and he's, he's had glue squirted into him. Yes, so into his sinuses. I've had difficulty talking because my sinuses are full of glue. And she flees horrified because it's clearly, mm. or clear to me at least, the way I was uh, reading it is that it's Dennis talking to her. It's, yeah, but he's kind of forgotten. He's he's basically he's almost developed a split personality. And the surgery hasn't cured it at all. It's just put the other personality in charge. No, that's right. Is it written... Uh, I'm trying now to, th- to, to think if it's written ambiguously enough that it could be Dennis talking to the girlfriend, that he's just contemplating having affairs with anybody that moves. But no, it's very specifically... It's the personality of, of the good boy. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. But yes, she, she obviously comic misunderstanding and, and, and she not unreasonably flees... Um, Julia discovers that the briefcase is actually in the boot of Dennis's car. Mm. That zero 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 is the combination, and she watches the tape, and that's where Dennis comes in and has the conversation with his recorded self. And it turns out that he was the dream was him whispering to her in her sleep. Well, that's what he says. And yes, you could argue, and the, and the argument is as well that, that he says, well, of course you've seen the combination for that suitcase it's been written, written up on the wall for months or so. And you could say, well, is he, what's the, is he gaslighting her or is this all, again, is this all true? It's kind of weird because, this, and then suddenly the film's become a thriller. 
And I think, is this the point when the music starts echoing Psycho a bit as well? There's those kind of <laughs> strings and things. It's, it's just odd, and it's just another tonal shift. Well, he says on the tape that he's made up a film by re-editing ads mm. so that they tell the truth. But Dennis stops it before it ever plays. Yeah. But even so, Julia is so repulsed by the man he's become Yeah. that the following day... I'm not sure if this is where I thought that maybe the film... Because I, I, I found the ending very unsatisfying, and I'm not entirely sure why. But the tape... I wasn't expecting the tape to come back. I kind of assumed that the tape was just something he was doing you know, while he was having his breakdown. And I was a bit surprised when it came back as a thing, and when it suddenly again starts referring to our... I, you know, uh, he starts talking about how he's proved that advertising is responsible for Holocaust. And there's all this build-up to what he's going to say, and then you don't see it. No. And obviously that's not... That's quite weird, because I don't think Bruce Robinson's got any more of an idea of what Dennis was going to say than anyone has. And the idea of actually painstakingly going through and trying to... Well, first you'd have to film adverts and then re-edit them. Yeah. So I can understand that it would have been a lot of effort to do it. But I thought once you start referring to that and making it the almost the key moment that there's been all this drama and this sudden t shift into thriller and what's on the tape and what are we going to see, it feels unsatisfying for it to be built up like that and then and then it's not paid off. Yeah, I think that might be where the message he wants to tell is getting in the way of Possibly. storytelling convention. The last mm. things that he says beforehand, like that Brazilians will be fixing oxygen prices. Yes. Um, and the way Dennis talks about, you know, ev everyone knows what they're getting. Everyone is they're making a making a choice. I thought, yeah, Brexit. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't it couldn't be more yeah. obvious in retrospect. Yeah. That you know, it's, you know, everyone knows what they're everyone knows what they're choosing. Everyone's making an informed decision. Yeah. No, that's right. And again, that's that's uh, it's 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 a very it does very nicely nail that hypocrisy of the idea that everybody always, you know, everybody's given all the information and therefore they, they're making the decision that's in their own best interests. Again, at the risk of getting all political on this, I've never understood the way that some of the Southern American states seem to be persuaded to vote against their own interests and vote Republican. You know, the, the fuss that was being made about the Affordable Care Act in America, most of it was coming, or to my perspective, seemed to be coming from the states that had the most to gain from it. Yes. And they just didn't want it. And that is that thing of, yeah, everybody's given the information they need to make informed decisions, aren't they? Well, the information they were being given was um, a pack De of lies. Yeah. It was about death panels. It was about death panels and, and communism and because uh, rates of education in that part of the United States is so low that it's almost as though people are being deliberately kept mm. stupid so that they don't question authority. Yeah, but it's just fascinating to... And, and I, I never understood quite... It's a, it's a hell of a trick to pull off. I, I just never understood quite how they worked it. But. As Dennis burns the remains of um, his previous self's yes. uh, artefacts, he has this very long monologue at the end of the film mm. as he goes off horse riding. And I have it here in full. Oh. I'm not going to read out the whole thing. <laughs> God, I never want to go on another train as long as I live. 
Roads represent a fundamental right of man to have access to the good things in life. Without roads, established family favourites would become elitist delicacies. When the hydrolyzed monosodium glutamate reserves run out, food would rot in, its, rot in its packets. Jesus Christ, there wouldn't be any more packets. Packaging would vanish from the face of the earth. But worst of all, there'd be no more cars. And more than anything, people love their cars. They have a right to them. They're entitled to any innovation that technology brings. Why should the hell... Why the hell shouldn't they have their CZT? How dare some smutty Marxist carbuncle presume to deny it to them? They're going to get it bigger and brighter and better. I'll put CZT in their margarine if necessary and shove vitamins in their toilet rolls. If happiness means the whole world standing on a double layer of foot deodorizers, I, Bagley, will see that they get them. I'll give them anything and everything they want. And it's all set to the swelling music of... Um, Holst's Jupiter, Jupiter. Jupiter Bringer of Jollity. Yes. It's, it's a really. I mean, it is the ending of 1984. It is. I suppose the yeah. victory of Winston Smith over himself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He loves Big Brother. Yeah. I don't. I wish I could put my finger on exactly why. I find it so unsatisfying it, because having, because he delivers the monologue and then the film stops, and it. I don't know what else I'm expecting from it, I guess. I don't know whether I was kind of expecting that it was going to go, going to go off in a kind of... Is, is it The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer, the Peter Cook film? about yes. some? I don't know if I was expecting him to suddenly start going off into politics or something. Maybe that you kind of expect at that point to see you know, a, 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 a series of flash-forwards into the future and you see him taking over from Richard Wilson at the advertising agency or you see him going into politics and becoming an MP. I'm not sure, but it's a great, it's a very well-written speech. It just yeah. seemed like a dissatisfying way to end. I think because it doesn't release the tension. Yeah. It doesn't have the satisfying story conclusion because Robinson wants you to know what he's thinking. Yeah. And it does become a little bit didactic because of that, even though it's, I think, a beautifully written speech. Um, and just ending it there with him in, in control, in power, mm. in total focus, it's, I think, much more ominous and much more unnerving than seeing yes, what that's happens true. next because you just have to imagine it. Yeah. Um, I, I really do like it as, as a satire because it is so angry. Mm. Because it's so uncompromising in its anger and it's so articulate. It's something that we don't see enough of, I think. Um, yeah. There's there's so much anger these days and on in political matters, and it's so poorly focused and so poorly articulated. There aren't enough Bruce Robinsons. Yeah, and it, it's... he only directed four films. I'm so, yeah, what was the other? Whitmill and I, this Jennifer Eight, that and then was many it. years later, The Rum Diary with Johnny Depp. That's right, yeah. And Jennifer Eight, I remember at the time it came out, it I seem to remember it coming out to a very... Bemused, I haven't seen it, but I remember it coming out to a very bemused reaction. It's very much sort of boilerplate Hollywood thriller, mm. and Robinson said that he really wasn't happy with it. Even, I think, and even the, the version that he'd signed off on before yeah. it was recut, he said, well, it's kind of... It's, yeah. it's his warlock. It's the thing he had to do to open the doors to do the things he wanted to do. Yeah. But as star-making performances go, I think this could be Richard E. Grant's mm. greatest work. Withnell and I kick the doors down. 
but yeah. this I think it's there's such range and he go he goes from manic comedy to pathos to playing all these variations on character to all these little sketches where he's brainstorming it's almost giving you a complete picture of a person's psyche yeah. as they go through this mental collapse as, as good as with Nell and I is if Richard E. Grant hadn't made How to Get an Advertising next or you know I, I think his, you would be looking at a very different career path for him yeah I do wonder if this is the film that sort of that created today's Richard E. Grant well uh, because it's mentioned so much in the diaries where people say mm. oh, but they, 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 when they saw women they thought oh this guy's a great comic performer this guy's you know, got a great sort of yeah. energy and they sort of thought oh no he's actually a great actor yeah because he's able to combine that with something with much more depth and personality and more of a dramatic sense yeah. as well and being able to combine the two so that you the comedy and the the, 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 the tragedy almost mm. are perfectly in sync with each other because it's interesting with with Nell and I that Paul McGann not then having a follow up film that kind of his career's kind of drifted a little bit it's possible I'm being deeply unfair to Paul McGann and he's done a lot of great stuff well, he, he was sort of a name at the time because he'd done the monocle news. Yes, here, he was quite notorious for it. Yeah, controversy at the time uh, because you know by the nineteen eighties, you know, the, the prospect of uh, criticizing World War One mm. was absolutely horrifying. Yes, yeah. So he, I mean, so he'd done he'd done good work in television, but it's just he never his career never took off. You know, it's just in, as I say. With Nan and I wasn't the boost to either of their careers that, that for a film that was as successful as it was. It, need, it, it needed it needed a second stage. Yeah, it was it was the foot in the door, hmm. and Grant got there with this. McGann, what did he do next? I mean, I'm not sure. Alien Three. Oh, that's oh gosh, but, I mean, that's that was, right. That was, that was that was a couple more years down the line, hmm. but he was largely cut out of Alien Three. Um. He's doing all right. Oh yeah, yeah. That's no no disrespect to his yeah, career. Yeah, it helps that he has that beautiful speaking voice, so yes. that he'll be doing um, na- na- nature documentaries for the rest of his life. Um, but um, I think of, of Grant's career, I think this is the really this is the film he should be remembered for. Yeah, with Nolan is the film that Robinson should be remembered for because that's has maybe a perfect script. Mm. But Withnall is such a caricature that there's there's a lot of room for, for comic antics, but not much more than that. Whereas here, Grant is the one in charge of the film, not Robinson. Mm. Thanks to Chris for making the time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with more than 50 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnos is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help with our running costs. I'm also participating in the Alzheimer's Society Memory Walk, so please head over to the Just Giving page at www.justgiving.com slash fundraising slash MW308839 to sponsor me. Thank you very much indeed. However, until next time... Cigarette... You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network. 
so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.